Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The fight to keep people in Ohio from voting on the nuclear industry bailout that legislators forced on us has become exactly that, a fight. We actually saw the arrest of someone for physically interfering with the effort to collect signatures to put the matter on the ballot. Statehouse News is where we will begin the discussion on This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the news by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, with co-host Laura Johnston. And before we open the discussion, let's review the top stories of the past week. Ohioans are seeing an unprecedented effort to block them from having their say on an issue at the ballot box by supporters of the ratepayer bailout of the nuclear industry. Opponents of the bailout, popularly known as HB6, are gathering signatures to put the matter on the ballot in 2020. HB6 supporters are working overtime to stop people from signing the petitions. First, we saw an alarming claim on broadcast and internet ads about China being behind the repeal effort. Then we saw mailers in Columbus and Cleveland that warned people that signing the petitions was providing their personal information to China. And then we saw someone so intent on interfering with those collecting signatures that she was arrested. Dublin police charged the Columbus woman with a misdemeanor count of criminal damaging for damaging the cell phone of a man collecting the signatures. Hackers have continued to attack the computer systems at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport since malware crippled some systems there last spring. But $2 million in computer upgrades have successfully blocked the latest attacks. Airport Director Robert Kennedy declined to specify the number of hacking attacks, and he said the Cleveland experience is similar to what is happening across the country. The malware attack discovered April 21st knocked out flight and baggage information boards and the airport email system, but it had no impact on flights or security, the city says. It took a week to get those systems back online, however. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine says he is looking into whether he has the authority to ban flavored e-cigarettes in the aftermath of a national trend of severe lung disease attributed to vaping. In addition to being linked to the disease, which DeWine called a public health crisis, the governor said flavored e-cigarettes are undoing years of work to keep young Ohioans from becoming addicted to nicotine. Critics say the flavored e-cigarettes target youth. A vaping industry spokesman said a statewide ban would force 85% of the state's 650 vaping stores to go out of business. Four experts told Cleveland.com that two investigations by Cleveland police and prosecutors of Mayor Frank Jackson's adult grandson present an appearance of a conflict of interest that should be addressed. Even if Jackson does nothing to interfere in the investigations, and he says he has not, the police and prosecutors involved in the investigations might make improper decisions to remain in the mayor's good esteem. Cleveland has no policy on conflict of interest, but Cleveland.com's Adam Faris reported this week that the city did have such a policy before Jackson became mayor. The law director under Mayor Jane Campbell instituted the policy, but city officials say it no longer exists. Because of multiple anomalies in the investigations involving the mayor's grandson, Council President Kevin Kelly is researching what actions city council can take to give residents confidence that justice will be served. Among the possibilities, council could launch an independent investigation and subpoena witnesses, or it could hold less formal hearings. Sports fans are marveling this week at the display of speed by Odell Beckham Jr. of the Cleveland Browns during the team's victory over the Jets. In the third quarter, Beckham caught a pass from quarterback Baker Mayfield and ran for an 89-yard 
89-yard touchdown, clocking in at 21.7 miles per hour. That's the fastest run on a scoring play so far this year, and Beckham believes he can go even faster, even 24 miles an hour. On the other side of the scrimmage line, the Browns' Miles Garrett leads the league in sacks after two games with five. That's good news for a team fans are still wondering about. The win this week came over a Jets team depleted by injuries. The coming game against the 2-0 Rams will be a better test. You know, talking about a Browns win on the road still feels unusual, Laura. Remember last October, they broke a streak of 25 straight losses, which was just one shy of the Detroit Lions record. They'll be back home against the Rams for a rare Sunday night game in Cleveland. Maybe the fans will help them. I hope so. Let's hope the Rams play more fairly than the HB6 people who want to keep us from voting on that nuclear bailout. Ouch. But but great segue. Let's welcome politics editor Jane Cahoon and data guru Rich Exner to the podcast. Hello, Jane and Rich. Hello. Hi there. Okay, Jane, we've talked about HB6 before, but I think it's pretty fair to say that this battle has become ridiculous. So let's start with that wacky mailing. Uh, yes, um, they, they, this is part of what I think is an unprecedented effort to stop this issue from getting on the ballot. Uh, this mailer showed up uh that is primarily red in color, uh, warning people that they were going to be giving the Chinese government control over Ohio's energy grid and warning people not to sign petitions and giving their personal information to the Chinese government. Um, It was... I think it's fair to say it was way over the top. Well, I mean, it's a lie. I mean, not just way over the top. So signing these petitions in no way provides personal information to China. You can get the same information from the Board of Elections. So it seems so over the top that nobody is going to believe it. But is it working? Well, uh, Laura, you're such a skeptic. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, I think anybody who's familiar with this process knows that this is public information. Anybody can look you up in the voter rolls, unless, of course, you've been purged, which is another subject. But if a person is, uh, let's say, goes to the library and somebody approaches them to sign a petition, I, I think the the HB6 people are hoping that they're going to, you know, something scary is going to stick in their mind like, oh, what was that mailer I got? Well, wait a minute, I'm going to play it safe and mm-hmm. not sign it. So is it working? I don't know. But there's just so much being done to try to prevent people from signing these things. That well, and let's let's go on to one of those. We had the story about the people gathering signatures being hindered by the pro-HB6 forces, ultimately resulting in a criminal charge. If that th- kind of thing were to continue, don't the HB6 people risk being charged with civil rights violations? They're impeding the election process. Well, I'm not a lawyer, but I would say they do risk violating people's rights. Um, everybody has a right to sign a petition if they want to. The campaign has hired these uh, what they call blockers or disruptors uh, who whose job it is basically they're getting paid to try to talk people out of signing these things, scaring them or whatever reason. And in this particular incident, somebody, one of these disruptors slapped a cell phone out of the hands of a, a petition um, of a signature gatherer and was charged. They captured it on surveillance video, but this is just one case. And the HB six people say they don't tolerate behavior like that. Well, I've seen the video and is, I mean, even if the cell phone incident hadn't happened, I mean, it's kind of ominous. Like, you know, you have two people watching everyone coming out of a building and there's like a a lady with a kid and it's like, I can just see you not wanting to get involved with that. <laughs> right, thing. Like, right. I, even if you're predisposed, these people, they right. seem crazy. Right. Um, even if you would sign, if you want to sign something like that, do you really want, you know, everyone staring at you? Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, combative people arguing in front of you, you know, sign, don't sign. And I don't know. I, I, I gotta tell you, if I were the one collecting the signatures, I would have that postcard and I'd say, Hey, this is how badly they don't want you to vote on this. Look how ridiculous this is. Sign my petition. And I would think that's, I mean, it's so preposterous. (laughs) You're giving your data to China. It's, I've never seen anything that ridiculous at this, at this stage. Well, we're leaving out who, who they is here too. I mean, Andrew Tobias, our reporter in Columbus, checked with First Energy, and First Energy won't say it's not them. 
So that's as much as we know, I but guess. But First Energy is the company that stands to gain <laughs> many, many, many millions of dollars. That's so what it's, the bailout is for, for their nuclear. First right. Energy Solutions, which is breaking away from First right, Energy, exactly. just to clarify. So one more time, Jane, <laughs> what does HB6 do exactly? Uh, well, it um, subsidizes uh, two nuclear power plants to the tune of about $150 million a year with charges on customers. Uh, those charges are offset by wiping away other charges that support energy efficiency and renewable energy. I'd just like to make one other point uh, about Andrew Tobias's story and what he found. One of the big takeaways is that one of the reasons that the pro HB6 people are working so hard and spending so much money is that if this gets on the ballot, it's going to freeze that that law. So the, the anti people will have accomplished what they set out to accomplish in in the view of the pro HB6 people because you know, it won't be voted on until November 2020. And during that time, First Energy Solutions won't be getting that money. I I thought they weren't going to get that money until January 2021. But the reason it getting on the ballot could doom First Energy Solutions is knowing that it could go down, they would just shut down and give up. Right. I mean, I, I think they were really counting on that. So let's talk about another state house issue that affects the uh, what we breathe, vaping. So Governor Mike DeWine is taking aim at the whole industry, which is already in the crosshairs of other states and even President Donald Trump. Can you explain? Yes, the governor told our reporter, Jeremy Pelzer, that he is looking into a ban on flavored vaping products, similar to what the governor of Michigan did through some sort of uh, executive order. He says... This is a public health crisis. We've, we're going backwards. We were moving forward in getting kids off of nicotine, and now we're going backwards. We're hooking a new generation on um, nicotine. All right. It's, 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 <laughs> it's Chris Soapbox time here. Yes. This seems really odd to me, this rush by everyone suddenly to prohibit vaping based on, when you compare it to lung cancer, a pretty tiny number of deaths and illnesses. If you think about it, cigarettes kill so many more thousands and thousands of people. We've known it for years, but no one has outlawed their sales. The vaping thing comes up with what by comparison is an infinitesimal number of deaths and everyone is on fire to stop the sales. Two things I wonder about here. Is this the cigarette lobby somehow getting its hooks into the political system to drive out this competition and boost sales? Or is it something more altruistic, something aimed at getting e-cigarettes away from kids? Let's face it. If there's a public health crisis about vaping, it's the number of kids that are suddenly getting addicted to nicotine while their brains are still developing. It means they'll be addicted forever. Has anyone speculated that the government is using this lung disease thing, as small as it is, as an excuse to pull these things away from the kids and correct that health crisis? I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but I I would note that in the budget, they also raised the tobacco age. So, um, and that affects cigarettes as, as well. So I don't know about the influence of the cigarette lobby. I do know Mike DeWine's agenda is very kid centric and, I think he has genuine concern for the health of kids. And you are very right. Cigarettes are terrible. But I think they feel these flavored things are getting kids hooked on nicotine who wouldn't otherwise be. So DeWine's looking into whether he has the power to stop it, like in Michigan. And if he stops the sales of flavored vaping cartridges, can the vaping industry survive? A lot of smokers have used vaping to break their cigarette habit, correct? Correct. Yeah, the vaping industry tells us that this is going to effectively wipe them out. And they are an alternative for people who are trying to quit. So yes, all of that. All right, let's turn now to the perpetual Ohio story, the battle over the voter rolls. We've seen this fight (laughs) for years and years on how to purge the rolls of people who don't vote. Uh, It's been in the courts too many times to count. Uh, more recently, we've talked about Secretary of State Frank LaRose's efforts, which have been a lot more transparent than most, but that transparency has turned up some big glitches. And we may have the biggest glitch this week in Cuyahoga County. 
don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> Every bit of it. It's complicated. However, it has to do with people who in 2015 changed addresses within the county. And there was some sort of miscommunication apparently between the Rose's office and the county about exempting these people. They had a certain number of people that they had on a list, but Apparently, they were supposed to look for more. And, um, but he didn't tell them, right. Uh, there, so, there was, he sent a list of 450 names. If they had done their homework, they would have found you know, uh, 1,700. Right, right. So, and then apparently the same thing happened in other counties like Franklin and Summit for another, I think, few thousand it, it, They more. all look like, and I think Hamilton was one of them, it seemed to be a very urban county problem. I'm just going to put that out well, there. Well, people who are against these purges, you know, very much argue that it disproportionately affects urban areas. Right. So, but this obviously is not the first time we've talked about people's names being knocked off the voter rolls. Has anyone talked to a voter who was cut off to see what they said? Well, uh, unfortunately, people usually don't realize this until they go to the polls and then they're told they can't vote or they have to vote provisionally or whatever. And then they're really not happy. And we hear from them. Now, is I, if I'm reading the story Andrew wrote on this correctly, the, the Board of Elections marked those names for purging, not necessarily purge them. And now La Rosa's office is saying they're going to fix this. So these people will not ultimately be purged. But this does raise questions anew about the system they use to remove the names. It, it, we keep finding more and more glitches to the point where you sit back and go, what's the point? Why, why, <laughs> why even do this, right? right? Why not just I mean, leave them there? It I'm is so- the story that never ends. And if I could just make one more point, I'd like to remind people that the deadline to register to vote is October 7th. Short of any evidence, though, that we've ever seen that are people who are going and voting twice or unregistered voters are coming in from out of state and using the name, who cares whether the, the role is clean? I mean, why not err? If you take one person off by mistake and they can't vote, I think that's a bigger deal than let's clean up the voting rolls until there's evidence that there's illegal voting going on. It's an excellent point. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to go move on to another topic. Facebook. Facebook might be in the hot seat with Ohio lawmakers, but it's not about how it affects voting. It's about antitrust. Jane, we learned this week that Ohio lawmakers want to hold hearings about whether tech firms like Facebook and Google have grown so large that they could be considered monopolies. Yes, the Ohio Senate Judiciary Committee plans two hearings next month, one in Cleveland and one in Cincinnati, to look at this issue. And one of the lawmakers pointed out that Ohio's antitrust law is outdated, so perhaps some update might might come out of that. They're they're being kind of broad about it, um, just to, and not just focusing on Google and Facebook like the attorney general is, but just sort of leaving it open. But you know, and the lawmakers are being careful to say they're not going to step all over the federal authority over interstate commerce, which often governs monopolistic behavior. But they also note that this is not your normal monopoly case. What are they pointing at? Well, in a normal monopoly case, you know, a business monopolizes the market, uh, charges higher prices, whatever, gouges consumers. And this is a case where uh, they don't get money from consumers. They get their data. So that that's what the attorney general pointed out is. But they're cornering the market on data yes. in a way that they're driving out competitors. And they're also cornering the market on advertising, which actually has an effect <laughs> on companies like ours. Ah, yes. Is this a partisan thing, do you think? I mean, the Republicans have made these tech companies their, their whipping boy of late. Is this more of a you know, pre-election year maneuvering, or do you think they actually are truly worried about the Ohio consumer? Well, both of the investigations that Attorney General Dave Yost has joined on behalf of Ohio are big bipartisan coalitions of attorneys general. So I would say it is a bipartisan issue. All right. At Cleveland.com, we've been banging the gong for three years about the need for bail reform and other changes in the criminal justice system. At heart is the fact that the system isn't fair. People get treated much worse if they're poor. 
just because they cannot afford bail. They sit in jail for days, weeks, or longer, and that destroys their lives. Cayuga County judges have been moving to institute reforms, but that effort is kind of bogged down under Administrative Judge Joe Russo, who's soon to be replaced as the court's top judge. Separately, though, the Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court is pushing for reform. Jane, what's the latest there? Well, Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor gave a recent speech before the Ohio Judicial Conference, so she had 500 judges in the room uh, listening to her talk about how the time is passed for reforming this bail system and that we're getting it backwards, that bail is a means of allowing the release of someone from detention while they're awaiting trial, not a means of incarcerating them before the case has even gone to trial. So uh, she encouraged judges to use risk assessment tools that came out of a recent task force, uh, and that um, she was also advocating for some legislation in the state house that would call for more treatment in lieu of conviction and so forth. So this was a pretty public speech, but in Ohio, the Supreme Court sets the rules for all the courts. So couldn't the chief justice just talk to her colleagues instead and, and get it done? Well, I don't know if her style is to, you know, force it down everyone's throat. I think she's hoping for some consensus and and, and a movement here. But okay. she does have the bully pulpit for sure. Right. Definitely was using that. All right, before we bring in Rich Exner, Jane, one last one for you. The effort to let people change their gender on birth certificates had a victory recently. Can you explain? Yes, there's a federal lawsuit that was filed in 2018 by transgender people who um, want to change their gender on their birth certificates to reflect their gender identity. And Ohio, um, I believe, is one of like two states that don't allow people to do this. They they allow you to do it on your driver's license, but not on your birth certificate. So the court ruled that this case can go forward. So it wasn't a final decision by any means, but it, it was a, a victory in this case. All right. Sticking with the idea of forms of identification, in this case, driver licenses and state ID cards. Rich, you had a piece recently that touches on our earlier topic, voter rolls. The Bureau of Motor Vehicles is reaching out to people with licenses and ID cards about voting, but you found there's a bit of a problem with that. What was it? There's no evidence this was by design, but the likely result is using driver's licenses to to reach out and get people registered to vote is kind of an uneven outreach effort because, quite frankly, maybe missing teens in urban areas or poor areas because what what they do is they, they match up the driver's licenses and state ID cards to the voter registration where people have a driver's license and haven't registered to vote they're sending mailings out but where this becomes uneven is lots of people these days are not getting driver's licenses very early about one out of every three kids doesn't have a driver's license now by the time they're 18 and like i said where are they more likely to be or more likely to be in urban areas poor areas any number of reasons in general it always seems like when we have a problem with voter registration the problem is in the urban areas it's what laura pointed out earlier and here it is again so, But this could become even more of an issue as the BMV adds voter registration address updates to its process when people come to the offices to renew their license and registrations. Like We can't just depend on the BMV. And this has been a problem that's existed for a while. Uh, the easiest way to update your voter registration is to go online when, when you move, but you need to have a driver's license or a state ID to do that in Ohio. In Ohio, I say, because many other states now acknowledge that lots of people don't have those forms of ID and they can use things like a passport. It's good enough for you to travel around around the world, but you can't update your driver's or your your uh, voter ID in Ohio online using a passport. You can go get a bank account without a driver's license, but but you can't update your uh, your voter registration in Ohio without one. Of course, the biggest story of the week that you did was not the voting rolls. It was the ever-popular release of the school report card. In which Solon is number one in the state again. My wife teaches there. We know. We know. Uh, Mine was second. But, Rich, you did a follow-up piece to the report cards that put Solon's record in perspective with some really pertinent statistics. Oh, this is just all so predictable. It's it's, it's almost gotten ridiculous over the years. But I feel like I need to remind people of this. So I run the new numbers each time around. And there are handful of districts, I forget the exact number in the state that got A's on the overall report card. The top eight districts in the state for income got A's. 
the 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 second poorest district in Ohio that got an A was Rocky River. Uh, so and they're like 102nd or so. The poorest. I, I was telling itself. people that, that at the soccer game last night. I was yeah. like, it's good for us. Yeah, they're, they're not liar. For an A district, Rocky River is really poor. <laughs> but you know, this raises a point that that's worth chewing on. About five years ago, if I recall correctly, Tri C President Alex Johnson laid out a study that he was involved in that added poverty to school ratings. It was the idea that educating kids in poverty presents big challenges because the kids don't have access to the same level of nutrition and other resources. They also face uh, psychological trauma from being exposed to violence. And when they added that to the mix, school district like Solon dropped and the urban schools rose. He made a pretty strong argument that if you really want to rate the effectiveness of teachers and schools, you should include all of the challenges and poverty is one of the big ones. Some, some segments of the report card, they used to call it value added. They've changed the terms a little bit over the years. Attempt to do that by saying, well, how did you help a kid improve uh, from their score, an individual's score from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. But all the evidence is that that's maybe levels the playing field on these incomes and uh, poverty a little bit. But but the slide is still there. It's clearly the the, the wealthier districts um, higher, the poor districts lower in general. Now, there's outliers, and we'll be addressing those in coming days. But I just took a quick look. Like, for instance, Steubenville in eastern Ohio, um, they're near the bottom in income and near the top in um in these report card grades. So they're outliers. So what we're talking about as a whole, um, the, the trend is, is unclear. And it's interesting is that the response to this, probably more so this year than any time in the past, I've been doing these for 12 or 15 years, is that I'm hearing a lot from, um, you know, seeing on Twitter or direct emails to me from from politicians, uh, policymakers, school officials, and even the head of the uh, this, the um the National uh, Teachers Union talk about that this is the real issue that needs to be addressed is how are we educating uh, kids at, at these different with these different incomes. That doesn't mean we're all not going to look up our grades for our schools. And, and our database has all of the schools in Ohio. You can look up all of the individual school buildings. Um, any other big news out of uh, the report cards this year? Um, I think that that's basically it. In- incremental improvements for some. Um, maybe one way to look at the report cards, though, is a school may be doing a good job or not. So my experience generally where, where I live in districts I'm familiar with, they're all doing a pretty good job nowadays. But if somebody wanted to place their kids in a school around higher performing students, these report cards will tell you if that's where you want to place your kids. Mm-hmm. All right, Rich, while you're here, I'm sorry, but I've just got to bring up the weather. You're the one who gets stuck doing the weather stories that are the result of all of my whims. But let's face it, we've been living through one of the longest periods of heavenly weather ever. Since the rain stopped at the end of June, we've had so many days that were beautiful, I can't count them. And they just keep coming. This resulted in you doing a number of stories, but what's the deal, man? What are what are what have we done to deserve this incredible period? Cleveland weather is great. That's that's why I live here. I, I'm not moving to Florida or California <laughs> or anywhere like that. My only complaint about Cleveland winter is that in the winter or weather the, in the winter you can't count on it being winter weather, so you can do winter activities because it's gotten to be so warm in the winter. But but lately, you're right. It, we had no all that rain in June. It. This has been come on. We've had what almost three solid months now of beautiful days and when there have been um, bad weather it's usually less than an hour or two in a day so the whole day is not wiped out even though some people i know lost electricity for multiple days <laughs> recently but but the storm itself Guilty. that might interrupt uh, your your round of golf for your your day on your kayak that hasn't happened you're right i don't know maybe we should count them up again what do you think laura Oh, no, I don't think. I, but I, I do think it's going to be another gorgeous weekend. And you can take your kayak out again this weekend because it's looking like uh, summer weather again midway through September. So I think we should convince all the pools in the area so, to stay open through September. So is Chris setting this up that we're going to have a winter like it was in 2014? When we, I oh, think we had something like 10, 10, 10 days below zero weather, which I thought was great for cross-country <laughs> skiing. The conditions are perfect. Most people didn't agree with me. No, Chris is just setting you up for another story assignment. That's all. Anyway, thanks for coming by, guys. Thank you. Thank you. In a moment, we'll talk the latest at the Cuyahoga County Jail and how the discussion about Frank Jackson's conflicts of interest keeps evolving. You're listening to the best news discussion in Northeast Ohio this week in the CLE. We welcome crime reporter Adam Faris and courts reporter Corey Schaefer to the podcast. Adam, we've got your seat all warmed up for you. You guys ready to talk about the jail? Of course. Yeah. Adam, you first. 
Uh, we've been talking about many, um, many weeks of the, about the jail, months of inspections of the main jail at the Justice Center. But you had a piece this week about inspections at the county's satellite jails. What's up with that? So the county runs two satellite jails, one in Bedford, one in Euclid. Uh, those have to be inspected, just like the downtown jail. And uh, um, so the basic process is inspectors come in, they find what's wrong, what's right, and they issue a report. And the you know the sheriff has to respond to that within 45 days. And he basically didn't respond to it for, I think, about two months. So why do you think this happened? The county's been much more active lately in dealing with the problems at the main jail. Why ignore this? Um, I think they're really focused on the downtown jail. Um, Eight of the nine deaths were there. That's where all the problems are and where all the inmates are. Um, So I I think Rhonda Gibson, the jail administrator, did say this week that 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 was kind of why they've been so focused on doing... I mean, there's so many problems there that they've been focused on there and that a lot of some of the issues were policy related and training related. And if they handle that downtown, that actually, you know, spreads to the uh, two other jails, too. So that should take care of those whenever. It's risky, though. The governor has taken a big interest suddenly in all the problems at the jail, almost like he might sue to take them over. Chances of that seem to diminish when the the county came out a week or two ago with all of the things they said they fixed at the jail, acknowledging they had a long way to go. I wonder if the problems at the satellite jails where they're just ignoring them raises that specter of that lawsuit. I mean, that's that's been out there, right? I mean, you've you've wondered whether that could happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I I know when um, I talked to Governor DeWine when he announced. Um, you know, all these big changes in the way that the state does jail inspections and and making his jail inspectors do monthly instead of yearly inspections at the Cairo County Jail. Uh, I asked him, will you do it? He said, I'll do it. If I if I think it's necessary, I have no problem suing the the jail to enforce the inspection rules. And, And that mere threat, it could help spur the reforms to move more quickly. It does. We did talk for a long time about how slow the pace was. And more recently, it feels like there's a greater focus. There's a new team in place. But I wonder if they worry about coming under state control, which has never happened in my mind, right? Never in Ohio. I mean, they, they've never, I don't even think have come close to considering doing that. So, uh, that would be a huge deal that would put a lot of pressure on them. So I'm sure they're feeling we got to make sub, you know, substantial changes qu- much more quickly than they have been making changes. And it, they do have a team in there. So a new team. So, so a few weeks ago we talked about an escape, an actual escapee at the main jail. We had an attempt at one of the satellite jails in the last week, right? Right, yeah. So not quite sure, again, exactly how this particular inmate got out. Euclid is set up a little bit different than the downtown jail. It's like a dorm style. So it's not not as much of the, um, you know, the cells and bars. But, uh, yeah, uh, inmate got out, and the only reason that they found him is because he went into the nurse's locker room um, and a nurse just happened to walk in and she saw him. Corey, you wrote about a different kind of jail inspection this week, one by a grand jury. Turns out state law says grand jurors have to tour the jail, but one grand jury found its visit unsatisfying and said so through their foreman in the report on his terms. So what happened? Yeah. So, uh, turns out that this law is a little, not a lot of people know about it, but there is a section in the state law, the Ohio revised code that says, Every three months, quarterly, a grand jury, the county grand jury, has to go visit the jail, inspect uh, inmate conditions, their food, their diet, their treatment, their punishment, and then file a report with the clerk's uh, clerk. It, the report has to go to the clerk's office, and then they send it to the state prison system. Um, so, Cuyahoga County has you know three grand juries at a time, so there's three times four. There's twelve twelve reports a year. They should be sending to the state every single year. Um, this particular grand jury was judge Sherry Madej. She was assigned to oversee it. And this was in, um, March of last year. So March of, or sorry, March of this year. And it was after the marshal's report, after all of Adam and Courtney's reporting about what was going on in the jail. So these, I talked to the grand jury foreman, Bob Feffrel, and he was very 
antsy to, to get in there and actually see what was going on in the jail. Like he'd read all these terrible stories and was ready to go see it and see for himself and, you know, do his part to report on what was in there. Um, and Judge Madej also wanted to go see it. Turns out they went without Judge Madej. She didn't, she wasn't notified when they went. And it was very brief, very brief, an hour. Uh, Bob said it was an hour. Um, took them, they saw two of the floors in the jail, which is not, uh, I, mean, I don't know exactly how many floors there are, but it's not anything what would be any sort of, uh, you know, in, in detail. Um, they didn't actually see any of the inside of the cells. They didn't go to the kitchen where the food is made. They didn't go to the commissary. Um, I think you know, Bob said that uh, a jail guard pointed out uh, uh, that a tray full of, or a, a, like a cart full of food trays was being wheeled by, and they're like, oh yeah, there's the food. And so they like looked at a tray. But they didn't eat it. <laughs> of course they didn't eat it. He said, he, he said you know, it, it looked like nothing he would want to eat, but, and it was just like, they were kind of like, that's it? That That's what we get? And then Judge Midday found out and said, this is not what we wanted, so let me ask if we can go again. The sheriff's department uh, said, yeah, sure, and they took him around for four hours this time, almost four hours, and they went uh, into the kitchen. They saw the inside of the isolation cells. Judge Bidet actually asked him to strap her into the restraint chair, um, so she got strapped into the restraint chair. Yeah, and, you um, know Adams had some videos about what happens when you get in the yeah. restraint chair. It's not, not a pretty. good place to be. No, right. um, yeah, and so basically they were, um, from what both Bob and Judge Midday said, it was after they got the second tour, they were like, "Why did we even get the first one? Like, how is that? That's not enough to do our legally required job by the by the state law." So now it sounds like this might be a standard. What are the ramifications of this whole back and forth? Uh, yeah, so Judge John Russo, um, I mean, this this report was filed in May, uh, and why we got a hold of it um, in the last month or so, and uh, when I sent it over to the court for comment and to say, hey, you know, what's going on with this, they responded that um, they're going to ask the sheriff's department to now give that more detailed three and a half, four hour tour to every single grand jury going forward. So. So it's not just grand jurors that get tours of this. Is every jail tour that's ever been had fake? I was in Leadership Cleveland a few years ago. We had a tour. It wasn't four hours. I'm starting to think everybody who goes in there, they have one area set up that's all neat and tidy and clean, uh, and that nobody has really seen how bad it is. Um, I mean, the jail gets toured, right? Lots of people come through it. Yeah, uh, and Judge Midday also said she got, when she first started on the bench in 2017, she got one. She got a jail tour, and she said it, basically it was the same thing as the first one. I think they have they had this standard, you know, we'll take you in and show you this. Uh, I'm sure it was probably while the inmates were being red zoned, so there, there were no inmates out. Um, and I got a bunch of other reports, too, from grand juries in the last two years, and they all said, you know, we never got to talk to an inmate. Uh, didn't get to see the inside of a cell. Wow. So, I'm, I mean, you know, you go in, they schedule you for an hour. Um, we've already reported on how often they use red zoning and how the inmates are all locked in, locked down. So they take you into a pod. There's nobody out and about. But but you, it was you sending that report over to the court administrator that told them they had this problem and that's why they're going to change it? I have not heard that they were aware of any any of these wow. issues. From what uh, John Russo said in the statement, this was the first time they ever had a grand jury ask for a second tour. Wow. And, uh, yeah, the statement said they will be asking in the future for this to be done. And I asked the county if they'd gotten that request, and they said no. Uh, and th- that was one of the things, too, that when DeWine made that the, the sweeping changes to the jail inspections, one of the things— he could, he couldn't do that on his own, but he called for the Supreme Court to to um, come up with standards for all jail, grand jury inspections of all jails in Ohio to make sure it's not just you know a half hour or whatever that there's set criteria that must they must be shown. Interesting. So, Corey, your other jail story this week was also alarming. You covered a trial where testimony showed guards had deleted video from jail surveillance cameras and, I believe, body cameras as well? Uh, yeah, so it was. It came out in testimony, and it, it was an issue that was made maybe in 40 seconds. Uh, so there wasn't oh. a lot of detail discussed in, in the testimony, but 
um, what came out was that the system that the jail had in February of 2018, at the time of this incident, uh, was basically the body cameras had like, it was like a regular camera. Like it had a little SD card and a USB drive. Mm -hmm. And the way that they got the camera footage from the device to the computer was someone had to go in. Usually it was the corporal, I think on duty at the time, had to physically either pull the SD card out and plug it into the computer and download it or, you know, connect it to the computer through the Mm -hmm. USB drive. Um, The system, you know, the the prosecutor was asking uh, an FBI agent who's been running a lot of the, working on a lot of the investigations into the jail, uh, how the system worked, you know, was it secure? Could you, can anyone go in and delete the footage? Um, And he's, the the FBI agent said, yeah, I mean, you could go in there, you could rename the files to whatever you wanted to, Mm -hmm. you could delete the video. They had no way of knowing that. Um, So Adam... You know something about this. Deleting video could be a huge problem. You've obtained via public records fights plenty of jail surveillance video that shows guards doing some pretty heinous things to the prisoners. If video is deleted, you got to figure it's it contains some more of that bad stuff, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's to me that's a bombshell. When when I saw Corey's story, I was I was stunned. That's. I mean, we talked about we the, get, the restraint get. chair. You have video of somebody in a restraint chair being abused. Multiple videos of inmates in restraint chairs being beaten or pepper sprayed or both. And um, there are some lawsuits, and there will we expect there to be a lot of lawsuits where that's going. They're going to need that video, and they'll be able to point out now we don't have it because of whatever i don't know if that's negligence or what but if you can if you can yeah nobody's deleting that video by accident yeah it's a deliberate act i should say though that uh just to be clear they didn't say what the video was related to or which videos that were deleted they just the fbi agent said we became aware that there were videos deleted they didn't know what it was so maybe they deleted videos of the guards treating the inmates really well and bringing them chocolate (laughs) bringing them extra sandwiches (laughs) right right perhaps so, Corey, this came up in a trial you were covering. So what else does this trial show about the jail? Uh, I mean, the, the body camera video is, I think, the big the big but side What is piece. the trial about? So, uh, yeah, so it's two corrections officers, uh, an inmate in February of 2018 uh, got into a scuffle with one of the members of the SRT unit, which is like the tactical unit that goes in. They don't usually at the time they weren't wearing body cameras and the inmate asked for a sandwich to, to switch his sandwich out because his bologna sandwich had stale bread on it. And the inmate or the guard told him no. And from there it kind of escalated and, you know, verbally and two and a half minutes after the guard went into the cell, the inmate had been, had his head smashed somehow and was missing three teeth, oh, one of which was shoved up into his nasal cavity. Um, and then he got wheeled down to the medical unit in the jail where he spent two over two hours in a restraint chair by himself with no uh, before he was taken to an emergency room with his tooth shoved up into oh. his nose. Oh, wow. um, so the one guard is charged with assault, uh, interference with civil rights, and unlawful restraint uh, in connection with the actual incident in the cell the other corporal is charged with uh interfering with his civil rights by denying him medical care um so they're saying he was the one who made the decision not to let the jail staff take him to the emergency room all right let's turn to city hall i'm going to get back up on my soapbox adam you've done a tremendous (laughs) job on the continuing story about the anomalies in the investigation of mayor frank jackson's grandson frank q jackson your reporting is really what Cleveland.com is about. You've been aggressive but fair. You've been the watchdog. And unlike some of our broadcast colleagues, you've gotten all of your facts right. You have led it every step of the way. So my hat's off to you. The latest news on this front involves conflicts of interest. You had a number of pieces about this. But let's start with the basic question. With police and prosecutors on these cases answering ultimately to the mayor, does he have the appearance of a conflict of interest? Yeah, all the experts that we talked to uh, for from Case, Western, Cleveland State, and the University of Akron all said there is absolutely an appearance of conflict of interest, which is 
one of the standards you look at. I mean, if it's like uh, the police uh, police chief's son, that's a direct conflict of interest. But the appearance of a conflict of interest certainly exists when it's the mayor, his grandson, his police department, and his law department. Even if the mayor had done nothing to interfere with the investigation and nothing you've reported suggests that he did, the appearance of a conflict of interest exists because people who work for him might do favors from unrequested. Right, right. And that was uh, that was the point some of the experts were making is, you're right, you don't maybe you don't need to be directly told, yeah, uh, I want special treatment. But when it's your boss or your boss's boss, you don't know, maybe that factors in some way, maybe it factors in subconsciously. But um, that's why you get rid of those cases and ask somebody else to come in who doesn't have to, you know, there's no question, um, uh, you know, no, no links to anything they can just look at it objectively okay so let's look at another story you wrote the city does not have a policy to deal with a conflict of interest like this but immediately before jackson became mayor it did have such a policy right so sabod chandra who's the law director from 03 to 05 put in uh this this uh conflict of interest uh policy for the law department because it was actually to rein in uh, they were going to. They were hiring outside counsel too much uh, mm. during, in, in his opinion, in his opinion, before uh, he took over. So that was actually to rein things in. But he said he purposely put as the first clause in this policy uh, that if there's an appearance of a conflict of interest, that's when you go. That's when you go and seek outside counsel or a special prosecutor in a case. So if they had a policy before Frank Jackson became mayor and they don't have one now, you'd have to presume that the mayor abolished the policy or somebody who works for him did. Do we know when or who changed mm, that? Nope. I am still waiting for a uh, list of answer or uh, answers to a list of questions I sent much earlier this week. So we don't know what happened to it. We just know they don't abide by that policy now. They go by the Ohio Professional Code of Conduct for Attorneys, which is doesn't really speak isn't as specific, I guess. This might not end here, though, right? Bob Higgs, who covers City Hall, interviewed the council president, Kevin Kelly, and learned that council might do something to clear up this controversy and get at the heart of the conflicts. Yeah, and it was, um, it, Kevin Kelly said they're exploring a number of different options, but they can hold hearings. Um, they can pass legislation that would require the police chief or the law department to get outside counsel, um, and they could, the other, uh, I think, is just public pressure coming out, making a statement saying you must, you know, ask an outside investigator to investigate the mayor's grandson. Or they could do nothing. We should point out that during the time Kelly has been council president, we've been critical of him for failing to do this kind of oversight. And even though he blanched at that criticism many months ago and promised to do oversight on things like airport security problems and the failed sale of our building for a police station, he still hasn't done anything. Does anyone really believe he's going to step up and do the right thing here, or is it just kind of quiet buzz? We haven't heard anything in the week since he said that, so... Okay. Adam, Corey, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm sure we'll see you again soon. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks. Next up on This Week in the CLE, a conversation with impact reporter Pete Krause on what he learned about how Minneapolis jump-started its economy. It's This Week in the CLE. Pete Krause, welcome to the podcast. Hello. This week saw the publication of your latest and final installment examining what other American cities have done to spark economic growth through regional cooperation. You started with the failed attempt to regionalize government in St. Louis this year, followed up with a look at Indianapolis 50 years after it merged government operations, and hit this week with a look at Minneapolis. Why Minneapolis? Well, because Minneapolis has done something very interesting. It's different than just about any other region in the country. Uh, it has met with success. It has met with uh, praise from good government folks. And uh, we thought we'd take a look and see what they're doing. So I want to hear how they got it done, because there had to be winners and losers in this formula. Yeah. Um, but first, how has it gone with the benefit of a decade of hindsight? Yeah, well, it's gone well. And what it is, it's it's tax sharing, in particular tax-based sharing, where municipalities, um, it's kind of a complicated formula, but basically they take their growth and they share it with other communities that aren't growing. So that tax base, 
there, there isn't a great disparity between tax base from one municipality to another, and it's gone very well. Another thing that they've done is they formed a metropolitan council, a kind of a governing body that oversees a lot of land use planning throughout the region. And the, both of these have been in place for about 50 years, and people credit both of these things with uh, helping to uh, grow sustainably, uh, more equitably, greater effort giving towards putting things in the right place, whether it's parks or roads or what have you. Let's put it in a little perspective that people that are listening to this can understand. So Solon has huge employment sector. They've grown like crazy and have a lot of economic development. East Cleveland has nothing. Um, under If we had a formula like that here, Solon would end up contributing some of its massive amount of taxes to a pool that would be shared in, in part with a city like East Cleveland, which is getting nothing. Right. In essence, they would. But they wouldn't actually share their tax revenue. They would share a portion of their tax base growth. In other words, if they grew, uh, if the assessed value of their commercial property grew by, say, $50 million, well, $30 million of that, or 60%, would stay with Solon and would be used by Solon taxpayers to generate the revenue they need. 40% of that would be would be contributed to a pool that would be then shared throughout the community. And it's a complicated formula, but it would it would basically allow East Cleveland then to utilize some of that tax base to raise revenue. But so that's the nitty-gritty of how it's done. But big picture, in my thinking, um, your story pointed out really – uh, beautifully how this benefits the whole region in Minneapolis. Like there's one county that has all of these parks and has stayed mostly rural and everybody goes to those parks. It's not like just the people in that. So in our in our example, um, if East Cleveland were more vibrant, that would definitely benefit Cleveland and Cleveland Heights. And there wouldn't be this kind of like hole in the middle where nobody wants to go, but you know, there'd be more development there maybe. And, and, and this whole idea is what's good for one city is good for the entire region. And each area can have kind of a specialty that people want to go there for. But hold on, hold on though. There were losers. I mean, Solon, if we did this here, would hate this, right? They they would say, "Wait, well, wait, we're giving up yeah, the taxes." Yeah, so, Solon might hate it because that's kind of the culture of Northeast Ohio. <laughs> so stay with me. How did they get the losers at the time to go along with this? Well, because the the losers realized that sometime uh, down the road they may be the winners. They realized that you know today's growth areas are tomorrow's stagnant areas, and they they saw. They looked into the future and they said, this is what's best for everybody. I mean, they truly had a regional perspective on things. Uh, and you also, you had, uh, and not only that, but you had Republicans and Democrats both, liberals and conservatives, who thought, hey, this is an idea where you can, where we can share the wealth in a way that's going to make the whole area more sustainable. And it doesn't, it doesn't take away all of the benefits of a community growing. The, the community still gets a, the bulk of the taxes, and they also get all the jobs and things that come with it. All right, it was- let, let, let's bring it home a little bit. We, we wrote about this, this tax-sharing plan 15 years ago as part of a project we called the Region Divided when I was on the Metro desk at the Plain Dealer. And we worked with the people in Minnesota to put that whole tax-sharing plan over our region and then backdated it to see what it would have looked like if we had started when they did. And and it was the similar effect. We had winners and losers. Um, But unlike in Minnesota, we found there was no appetite for discussion here. One of the reasons you're doing this project is to inform the economic development discussions that are going on. Do you think we might have a chance to be more open-minded about these things now? Or do you think there's still no appetite for it? Open-minded, yes. Will we replicate what they did in Minnesota? No. I mean, they hit the sweet spot. They they put in place something that took advantage of the the suburban sprawl that was just beginning. You know, if we'd have done it 40, 50 years ago, it may have worked for us as well. We're going to have to figure out something more, uh, something uh, different here. But is there an opportunity to share taxes regionally? Uh, yes. It, the legislature will have to get involved. Um, and there'll have to be some some uh, uh, open mindedness for sure. But but think of the opportunities. Maybe a new airport. Maybe greater development along the lakefront. Think of the opportunities where multiple counties could benefit if they come together, share their resources to make it happen. 
the airport canal today is what? It's owned and operated and financed by the city of Cleveland, right? And it's a pit. It's, it's like one of the worst airports in America. Perfect example. So, you know, like I said, one of the chief reasons we sent you off on this series was to inform this unprecedented economic development planning that's going on in Northeast Ohio. The most immediate one is called Cleveland Rising. It's the plan to bring a thousand people together in late October to build consensus on what we want to be in 10 or 15 years. When we hosted the original two-day planning session for that at Cleveland.com late last year, I was surprised at how many people who had gathered there, and it was, what, 80-some people, how many just bubbled up on their own the idea that we need regional co- cooperation, that the balkanization of our area, the, the isolation, the polarization is hurting us. Do you think the idea will bubble up when we get a thousand people together for Cleveland Rising? Oh, it, it will definitely bubble up. The question is, will it be embraced? Um, I, I personally think that, we, uh, and then you've written about it, that we are at a, a moment of reckoning in our community where we are going to have to take the idea of regionalism and, and regional cooperation seriously. And if and if, and if something is identified as as positive, pull the trigger, make it happen. I do think that, and tax sharing could be part of that. Uh, there's all kinds of elements uh, that that could be that could be uh, part of that regional cooperation. Now, is that the the cure all for everything? No, but if you you need to establish a foundation of equity, a foundation of of regional cooperation, and then things are going to so many other things can can stem from that and evolve from that. And, and I think there's a good chance that that will happen. So with Cleveland Rising, it's starting to get some buzz. But with buzz comes criticism. One of the criticisms is that many people who need to be in the room, especially those who are challenged economically, cannot afford to be off work for three days. So how are organizers responding to that? Full disclosure, I've been part of that organizing team from the beginning. <laughs> Just want to lay that out there. Go ahead, Pete. Well, c- a couple of ways. Uh, obviously, you know, people can, who represent those who can't go can attend the meeting, but more to the point, uh, there are meetings prior uh, before the uh, Cleveland. Uh, uh, I was going to say Cleveland Uprising, Cleveland Rising. <laughs> That's a better uh, name. Yeah, Cleveland Rising. That where people can go uh, and and share their feelings, and those feelings and thoughts will be presented during the summit. Uh, but somebody who's done something very interesting is Metro Health, and what they've done is they they're holding a uh, essay contest and. Uh, uh, and, and people are going to be asked to write about how they think they, you know, this area can be improved. And they're going to select 20 people from their uh, employment roles uh, to attend the, uh, the summit uh, on the company's time. So that's, that would solve that problem of, of people who might otherwise be represented being able to do it. And I mean, it's a terrific idea. It would be great if several other companies were to kind of follow suit in some way because you do need that – representation all the way up and down the line. If you don't, whatever comes of this, people are going to be able to point to it and say, hey. You didn't include everybody. You didn't include everybody. I've got to salute Akron Boutros, the Metro Health CEO, for doing that. Hopefully he's blazing a trail for others to follow. should point out he is also one of the organizers of Cleveland Rising. Pete, what other lessons did you find in Minnesota for us that could help inform that process? Were there any Mm -hmm. big thoughts? Um, Yeah, I I think – that um, you know, when when you do things like you share taxes, when you do things, when when you establish regional governments, you 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 do more than just put in a structure that can help even things out. You create a, a mindset where everybody kind of feels they're in the same boat, they're working together. And that doesn't exist in Northeast Ohio, where everybody feels like you know they're they're moving in the right direction. Um, that was something that I that I took away from. Um, uh, from Minnesota. I mean, they have their problems too. I mean, they have serious problems just like every other uh, major metro area. Their, their racial disparities uh, are, are just like everybody else's, if not, if not worse. But what I took away from it is that, uh, you know, it's, it's not enough to just everybody strive to, you know, get as much of the pie as you can. You got to bring along everybody with you. And when you do that, you create a region that other people want to live in because mm-hmm. they know that people are going to be treated right. So what's next, Pete? Um, since we're finished looking at other cities like Minneapolis, what do you focus on now? 
Well, I, that remains to be seen. I figure some folks around here are going to have something to say about that. But <laughs> but what I'd like to do, I'd, I'd like to look at individual cities in Northeast Ohio, you know, look closer at, at tax rates, look closer at tax revenue, look closer at opportunities for uh, uh, consolidating and, and regional uh, regionalizing. There may be some other communities that we want to look at. There's a lot of good things going on in places like Denver, Portland. I don't know if we have the budget to send me to all these places, but I do think it's it's maybe perhaps time to start looking more inward, taking what we've learned and seeing how it may be applied locally. Sounds good. Thanks for visiting with us. Coming up, Troy Smith predicts who will be nominated for induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when the ceremony returns, and maybe his editors thought on it as well. You're listening to This Week in the Clee. Troy Smith and Mike Norman are in the house. Good to have you guys back. Good to be here. Troy, you did what has become a regular feature of yours this week, your prediction of who will be nominated for Rock Hall induction. But you did it with a twist, comparing the nominations to ones in the past. How did that work? It was different. I'm trying to come up with a a logical pattern that the Rock Hall has for determining its nominees, which is... (laughs) Good luck. luck Yeah. So I I just kind of took the 15 nominees last year, which was a shorter list for them. They had done 19, 18, you know, in years past, and tried to pair someone, you know, who is this year's Janet Jackson, who is this year's uh, LL Cool J, who is this year's uh, so on, so on. Um, And that's why I tried to come up with a list. It locked me into some nominations that i don't think will actually happen um but it was still fun doing that doing it that way something different okay let's get to the important stuff and i'm just going to point out uh that this is who you think will be nominated not who you think should be nominated some of them i do think should be but yes so some of them are double okay so can you give us a list Sure. Uh, it's 15 of them. It's Boston, The Notorious B.I.G., George Michael, King Crimson, MC5, Rage Against the Machine, Peter Frampton, Sting, B-52s, The Marvelettes, The Replacements, Tina Turner, War, Warren Zevon, and Depeche Mode. We've talked about this before. It still boggles my mind that Tina Turner has not been inducted as a solo act before... Um, Stevie Nicks yeah. just kind of throws and, me yeah, and to let people know Steve, uh, Tina Turner is in with Ike so Ike and Tina are inducted as a duo but that does not count her 80s solo career where she exploded there was a recent uh, I think it was a New York Times magazine story on her She's anyway um, you also but you said that you wondered whether the 60s are done that that there won't be any more 1960s nominees i heard greg harris say once on a radio interview that he thought the zombies closed the books on the 60s and i think he meant in terms of rock bands it'd be interesting to see if the rest of the nominating committee thinks that just because the 60s have been so prevalent in all the rock hall inductions always been a 60s act are there any 60s bands that you would see as snubs or do you feel like the cream of the crop really has been exhausted I mean, from the mainstream standpoint, it's it's been exhausted. But if, you know, MC Five was in the '60s. Uh, there's some Motown groups like Mary Well or acts like Mary Wells and the Marvelettes who can make a case. But I don't think you need to go into you know the Turtles and these acts. But you know, the Rock Hall might go there. They seem to prefer the older bands. They'll take a fourth tier '60s or '70s act over a first tier '90s act any day. It seems. Why do you think Boston? Hasn't gotten in, given all the other kind of 70s bands that have gotten in. I think they just started kind of getting into those arena rock acts, um, like Chicago, even though Chicago had a jazz bass, or Steve Miller band. Um, they just started to show them some love. So I think you're going to see Boston, Bad Company, Doobie Brothers. Those acts are going to start getting more attention. That seems to be the pattern. Prior to that, I think they looked at a band like Journey and said, they're not, you know intelligent of they're not the critical you know sense of who we want to put in but the, they're changing the trend now and i think you'll see acts like boston come up more mike you uh, were a rock critic when they were exhausting the nominees from what the 50s exactly what's your thought on his list well i, I think it's a great list i think uh it, peter frampton is a very interesting very interesting choice and i uh, just went on a farewell tour because he's got some uh, malady that's going to prevent him from playing guitar very soon which is a bit of a tragedy considering how great of a guitar player he is but he has one of the greatest live albums of all time uh, great songwriter and guitarist in his own right that was one of them i thought was really um a really good pick so you think he deserves to be in i do and i also think sting as a uh, solo artist is an interesting choice so 
He's a bad choice. Even though I, I picked him to, they've nominated him before, but I don't. I don't know how you get there with Sting. Of, As, does he need to be in outside of the police? Really? <laughs> of of the list you provided of who you think will be, who do you think should be who you didn't name? Oh wow, Craftwork, hundred percent. That's always my number one, just because they pretty much invented electronic music, and I don't know anyone who can turn on the radio today and not hear that influence. They have been nominated several times. So in this case, the nominating committee's done its job. Voters like the man sitting next to me just haven't really gotten on board. <laughs> so uh, are you think that I they voted. would be more likely to vote for Depeche Mode then? Because that's who you have as this year's Yeah, I, I do think that Depeche Mode has a better chance. Craftwork's just too weird, I think, for some of the voters. Just like Nine Inch Nails or people bring up Jethro Tull or who's the other one? Oh, Tool. People have been asking me about Tool online, like. I will say nine inch nails in. They're not putting tool in. I will say I voted for Kraftwerk every single time they. I had to twist his arm. I was next to him during the ballot process. All right. So, so this ceremony will be in Cleveland next year. Although I guess the date's still not set. Um, We had some sad news about somebody who was inducted in the most recent Cleveland ceremony. Rick Ocasek of the Cars died uh, a few days ago. Uh, and most of the discussion about him that I've seen in the national media talks about him being from a Boston band and doesn't really focus on his serious Cleveland roots. In addition to being inducted here, Mike, what are his Cleveland roots? Well, his family moved to Cleveland when he was 16. His father went to work at NASA Lewis as an engineer, and he went to Maple Heights High School and saw this guy named uh, Ben Orr on television on Channel 5 with a band called The Grasshoppers thought he was pretty cool they hooked up and eventually moved to columbus and founded the cars shortly thereafter so his whole origin story the first time he played music in front of um, people publicly was in cleveland Uh, one of his first formative musical experiences was seeing the velvet underground at la cave which was a famous uh, club on the east side of cleveland so without cleveland the cars would not exist i was struck i didn't realize he was 75 i mean he, I, I when the cars came out i was in high school and and everybody loved them and their music is some of that 70s music that actually still stands there are other bands that came out back then that you really don't listen to much um but he was fairly old when he finally hit a big he had been testing the the audiences a long time before he landed with the cars the the cars to me it got burnt for a while because every fm station in the world played moving in stereo or let the good times roll ad nauseum during most of the 80s and 90s and you can probably still hear them ad nauseum um but but his genius was pop songwriting with that fm production sheen but it still would meet to it and he also was a great producer i mean he produced Weezer's Blue Album. He produced a No Doubt Album, uh, Bad Brains. He produced a lot. I think well, I've always said one of the, the most underrated things in music is, and the hardest things to do is write a hit record. And the Cars did that right out the gate in the late 70s, right? It was Good Times Roll. It was, um, then they went on to Shake It Up, Drive. They were making hit records, and it's really hard to do. And Rick Ocasek was the songwriter and at times the producer on all those hits. He was also really key to the to MTV and the and the evolution of music video. Well, it's nice that he got to to see himself inducted before uh, before he died. He, I I saw him there looking at his uh, at the display for the cars during that induction week, and you could tell he was he was feeling pretty honored about it all. All right, we've come to the end of another episode. Thanks to Troy and the rest of the team for the great, Troy and Mike, and the rest of the team for the great conversation. And thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, or if you don't, please leave a review. This week on the CLE is published each Thursday. Hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode, and we will be back next week.